0: I think what we want to we want to see is like can we build a world where everybody, not just in our social sector, but in society at large, that one can you know and one should perhaps uh, you know spend one's career making an impact in the world and uh, and not not have that be the sort of province of the. That do gooders uh, of the world, but that everybody thinks about that, and and everybody has purpose as a as a question that they that they consider for their career alongside, you know, status and money and and whatever. That you're also putting purpose there, uh, and that that's mainstream, uh, I think, and mainstream globally, not just in one or two countries.
1: You're listening to Roshan Paul. Uh, He's done a few different things, but for the last seven years has been co-founder and CEO of the Amani Institute, which develops talent for the social sector. In practice, that means education to equip people with the skills that they'll need in volatile, uncertain, and fast-evolving contexts. And they do this from hubs in Nairobi, Bangalore, and Sao Paulo. A lot to unpack in what is a very competitive and, and quite difficult sector, the education sector, why it's more interesting, certainly, and probably more productive to be located in emerging markets for those who are interested in social innovation. What pushed Rashan and his co-founder Elena to start up a new offering and a new way of trying to contribute to social entrepreneurship more broadly? What scale looks like? What is the kind of change you hope to make in the world when you're working with talent development or this kind of back-end or internal process. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Thanks for doing this, of course. Uh, I usually start these in in the same place, which is a very simple question. Uh, how do you explain what you do for a living if you meet someone socially at a party, at a restaurant the pub. Thanks Ian I
0: explain it as as simply as possible I help people build the skills that they need to have the careers that they want uh, but with a focus on careers in
1: social impact. That is admirably simple
0: (laughs) (laughs) Of course there's like you know a lot more context and that can be given to that but like I think that's the, the simplest way of saying it
1: does that um, get readily understood uh, in an in Indian context or in a in Kenyan context or or the places where you might be having that conversation? I think what it does is
0: it, it uh, is uh, enough of a hook that it gets people to ask, like, uh, how, right? Like, what are the skills people want and, and how are you doing that? So, so in that sense, it works. I think the, the one other line that I will sometimes add is that um, increasingly people don't want to choose between making a living and making a difference, and uh, but it's not so easy to make a difference. If social problems were easy to solve, we would have solved them already, and so therefore you need to train for it uh, the way that you would train for any uh, top sort of uh, highly difficult uh, area of work, right, like doctors or architects or um you know, soldiers or Olympic athletes and so on. But there isn't a good uh, way of training people in for the social impact sector because uh, the traditional types of degrees that put people into the space, whether it's international development or peace studies or policy studies. Uh, and so on, tend to be quite academic and theoretical and don't really sort of, they're not really what you end up doing on a day-to-day basis when you when you are working in these areas. So uh, while they can help you understand history and theory and so on, once you get to the ground here, it's more about how do you work with teams? How do you communicate effectively? How do you uh, do creative problem solving? And these are things that are not generally taught in universities. And uh, and for understandable reasons, that's not what universities are there for. Uh, however, that's what we need people to have those, in terms of those skills in order to actually make a dent in solving social problems. And so because there's no real way to train for this area and it's really difficult work, what we want to try to do is actually uh, help people to build the skills to do this level of work over their careers.
1: And that's not so much the... Or it's not just the... Sort of idea of the heroic individual social entrepreneur, although there is there is a place for that. Um, there seems to be roughly equal emphasis on uh, the entrepreneurship model, but also sort of how this stuff works in, in complicated institutions, right, that have to engage with these kinds of problems?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So actually, like, if you define entrepreneur as the person who starts the, the organization, then we actually work with very few entrepreneurs. Our primary focus are the people who want to work for those entrepreneurs. Right, so we're about talent development for the social sector. Uh, We define social sector very broadly, so it could be anything from a school in a slum to the UN, uh, social businesses, uh, you know, CSR, all of that could fit uh, into it. So we do define social sector quite broadly, but what we are looking for is to build bring the next generation of leaders and the next generation of talent into the space, not necessarily to have more organizations started by more entrepreneurs
1: the location of this the physical location is is uh, i mean it is some of this is remotely delivered so it can be it can be global in some sense of course but physically uh bangalore nairobi and sao paulo no can you right. walk mm. through the origins there what was the what was the drive to to be located in those places specifically Sure.
0: So uh, it all started when we realized that uh, even the best universities in the world, in the US and Europe and so on, weren't, were not doing a great job of preparing people for this type of work. And therefore, uh, what was the situation going to be like in, uh, you know, in emerging markets and so on with the quality of education? And uh, then, and just given the fact that our team, uh, my co-founder and myself, are both from emerging markets, we sort of instinctively have a greater interest and passion for uh, those uh, parts of the world. And um, when we were looking at, well, where do we want to be uh, set up? What we felt was that since we were working in social innovation, or our primary approach to training people is to build creativity, problem-solving innovation skills, then it was good to be based in the innovation hubs in emerging markets, and so we don't even necessarily pick Kenya, right? We pick Nairobi because it is the innovation hub for not just East Africa, but I would argue for for almost all of Africa for social innovation. And likewise in in, in Latin America, as Sao Paulo is the most sort of you know central gravity for innovation uh, in in both the business, the tech, and the social sector. And likewise, when we thought about Uh, Asia, we felt, well, the largest civil society or the largest uh, social sector in Asia is in India. And within India, um, though there are many important cities working in social impact, the city that sort of most um, epitomizes innovation and and, uh, innovative thinking is Bangalore. And so that's when we decided on Bangalore. So it's not even that we picked the country so much as the cities, and the cities have to be sort of centers of, uh, sort of widely seen as centers of innovation in their region.
1: Yeah, but it, it almost it it was interesting the way that this is is framed in your sort of product offering, which is that uh, the the frontier of social change or the the location of more innovative thinking about emerging issues is actually more likely to be in emerging markets as as contexts in which uh, problems tend to you know even global problems tend to materialize faster and have more impact given sort of weaker uh government and other capacities to engage with them so the the hypothesis i guess is that you're going to find more innovative thinking in in these sort of settings than you might in a uh, wealthier perhaps more amply endowed uh, in other respects northern context is that a is that a fair characterization of your uh, you're thinking absolutely yeah and I think what you you can see change happening faster right so
0: I grew up in Bangalore in India which when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s uh, looked very very different uh, than it does today after the technology boom uh, and then when we started uh, amani Institute in Nairobi uh, it looks very different even five years later today than it did in 2012. When we started, um, so you can actually see change happening faster in these areas, and that gives you a clue into how the world is changing, What, where is the frontier, where, uh, what is the future likely to look like, and, and because you can see change happening so quickly. Whereas in the West or the Northern uh, countries, uh, things, institutions work, and uh, and so on. So you don't see change happening so fast. Uh, one of our advisors told, you know, he had this uh, analogy that, uh, that as always said to me, he's he's a Dutch guy and he said, you know, in my own house that I own, if I wanted to actually turn my basement into a wine cellar, I would need to get approvals from, like, you know, seven different government agencies mm-hmm. to do that because there's so many regulations about, uh, you know, how to do something like that, right? Whereas, in an emerging market, you can like st- start a business relatively quickly and move forward pretty quickly. There aren't as many, there, there is bureaucracy, but there's also a sort of um, a greater sort of permissive environment to actually try things. Um, and part of that is because the inter- institutions aren't that good or aren't that solid or aren't that honest, in some, uh, of course, but, uh, but it also means that you can operate with more freedom, with more innovation, and it's um, you know, more dynamic in terms of how quickly things change. Because Amsterdam, you know, I've been going there since I started Amani Institute, I've been going to Amsterdam quite a lot. It hasn't changed, it has more tourists now, but it hasn't changed really in six years. Whereas Nairobi, for instance, is unrecognizable almost, uh, and so that's suppose Bangalore. So, so that's why it's much more interesting to be in these places. If you're interested in innovation and change, uh, you can see it happening all around you in a in a much quicker way than uh, when you're when you're living in, in the West.
1: And what is the um, what is the pitch? What is the sort of uh, you know offering if you're communicating not on a philanthropic basis but more on a a commercial basis um, to, uh, to institutions and also to individuals. I mean, how, how do you articulate the, the value proposition?
0: It depends, you know, whether it's an institution or an individual. So I think uh, for an indi- individual, the value proposition really is, you know, come and get a more practical, holistic, uh, field-based uh, professional training than you would get in a master's program. Uh, particularly a, a like high, highly ranked and expensive master's program in North America or in Europe, right? So uh, this is a lot more affordable and it's a lot more practical and uh, a lot more connected to the work you're eventually going to do. So that's to the individual. I think to the institution, it, again, it depends what we are approaching them for, but uh, there could be a pitch in terms of, you know, uh, providing the, a new set of talent for their organization's growth. Um, another, you know, because we we also have um, an arm that does uh, capacity building inside organizations. So we will go to an organization and work with their staff or their stakeholder group, uh, be it grantees or um, fellows or beneficiaries or whoever, to build capacity around leadership skills, management skills, communication skills innovation skills and so on. so we could work with any audience of that institution to build capacity for uh, in these areas that are you know kind of of critical importance in the 21st century but generally lacking from how universities uh, training. Um, or we could partner with them in a number of ways like we run a lot of events so we invite people to be guest speakers, uh, speaker at events or speaking opportunities, or uh, hire from us and thereby save a lot of time and money in finding high-quality people um, and uh, you know, all other types of network relationships and, and partnerships.
1: There's no, there's no reason that um, that pitch, so to speak, would not be relevant from someone coming from the global north, right? It does seem like for people who want to work in the social sector or want to work particularly in sort of the quote-unquote development field, you know, they're planning to spend most of their professional lives in the developing world and, and, and addressing these sort of policy problems, but, uh, and therefore you'd think would be a natural sort of market for this, right? Is there a lack of interest there or is it more a question of sort of sequencing and, and prioritization of your efforts?
0: It's a good question. I I don't know for sure, right? Like anything I can say would be conjecture. But, Please, um... <laughs> conjecture is very welcome. <laughs> um... But I think that, you know, partly the fact that we're running this program in emerging markets, uh, you know, but trying to position it as a world-class, and I truly believe having had the benefit of a world-class education in the U.S., um, I know what the standard is, and I truly believe that what we're offering is world-class. But if you don't know that, uh, then... Let's say you're coming from you know, Sweden or Switzerland um, or Canada, you know, um, where the education systems uh, are good, or you're not. You're not yet clear to you that it doesn't give you what you need. If doing a master's and checking that box is important for you or your family, uh, then it it does become. You know, it's, it, you compare the two, and and the masters may may seem more appealing. Uh, so that's why we also tend to get people in their late twenties and early thirties who either got a masters or who have come to the conclusion that they want something less academic and more practical. Um, and uh, and so that that's more our target sort of group. Even even when they're from Europe or the US, they are either postmasters or sort of in, instead of a masters. Uh, because they want to do something, you know, a bit more practical for them. So uh, so I think those are some of the elements. I think uh, the cost that we offer is very competitive, very very good if you're from the U.S., but it's sort of on par with what a, you would pay in Europe to go to schools, so, especially when you take into account flights and uh, to the region and, and so on. So, uh, so I think that's another set of reasons. I think that there's probably... Uh, things that we haven't done as well, right? Like that, about our own internal marketing that we could probably do better at and, and we're learning and growing and uh, and we'll eventually hopefully get there. But we've, we've had more than 50 European uh, fellows and probably about 20 or so North Americans. So, so it's not nothing, but it's still relatively small compared to our Africa and uh, Latin America. Uh, so. mm-hmm.
1: and could you... Um flesh out that profile a little more uh i mean obviously it's hard to or impossible to generalize fairly across 400 plus people but the uh profile that you mentioned of of someone in their their late 20s early 30s um let's say from kenya or a neighboring country like what what sort of uh professional profile are we talking about? What sort of ambitions and hopes and what kind of motivation, I guess, most critically to step back, take a break, do something a little bit different before, you know, re-engaging with the practical work?
0: Yeah, so actually um, we, we have kind of three uh, standard profiles. So I can, I can talk to each of them. Um, so the first is people who are leaving the private sector and wanting to switch to the social sector. So, this could be someone with two or three years' experience, it could be someone with 20 25 years' experience in the private sector, but they've come to the conclusion that they want to do work that's more impactful, and they also realize they don't know how to begin, like they don't know where to go for that. And so, they come to us to give them an opening into what the scope and size of the social sector is, and uh, and what their opportunities may be within that. So, that's probably about 30 Five or thirty-seven percent of our our audience. Um, the second group are people already in the social sector, uh, but are looking to either, you know, switch industries within the sector. So go from, let's say, education to agriculture or something like that, um, or are looking to start their own uh, venture. So they're looking to sort of take the entrepreneurship route or are um, looking to, you know, build their skills to go to the next level of leadership uh, and responsibility. The demographic, that's the social uh, sector. That's probably about 50 uh, 2 or 53%. And then the like, remaining kind of 10 or 15% is a mix of young people that are looking to um, uh, start their careers. So this is sort of 24 and under um, who have just come out of university and looking to build their career in the social sector. Um, or, you know, like people that's hard to sort of put into a category it could be mothers coming back into the workforce or uh, public. Um, you know, public sector people uh, looking for a, a sort of uh, sector change and things like that. So, so that's kind of a miscellaneous plus young people kind of uh, box of like 10 people, So, uh, 10%. So, um, so, so yeah, so it's roughly like, you know, 40% private sector crossovers, 50% social sector, um, you know, people going to the next level, and about 10% are young people and uh, sort of miscellaneous.
1: And can I ask a more basic question? In what prompted you to embark on this? Um, it's a hell of a lot of risk and uncertainty and difficulty, particularly in the early stages, uh, particularly for an education sort of model, right? Like this is a quite a high set of barriers to entry in a way. So what drove you to focus on this? And we're talking... Nearly 10 years now, no? Yeah, uh, seven. Seven Seven years. Um, So what what was at the outset there? What prompted all this?
0: Um, Well, I think that, you know, for the first 10 years of my career, I served social entrepreneurs. Like I I worked in an organization that was supporting social entrepreneurs the world over and, and was brilliant. And I got to meet loads and loads of really incredible people that were changing the world. And I felt really fortunate about being able to support them. Uh, and then you started to identify this problem that these people were struggling to uh, build organizations uh, and therefore their uh, the potential impact that they could have was being constrained by the fact that there wasn't a good flow of talent um, to them. And uh, people were starting to contact me and, and ask me the same question that... Um, Uh, that I asked like 10 years when I was starting my career, which is how do I build a meaningful career that's not just about making money, that can also have impact. And I'd spent 10 years kind of answering that question. And so I felt like, you know, if I put together my own experience with the sort of experience I've had of working with all these incredible social entrepreneurs, then we could probably come up with some way of training people uh, to be more like those, um, you know, incredible change makers. And and once I had that idea... And once I also met my co-founder who was equally passionate about it and, and therefore, you know, uh, provided um, uh, sort of moral, but, uh, and moral support, intellectual support and just sort of uh, uh, another, you know, um, another head on the problem. And uh, it's just like we grew passionate about it and said, yeah, we have to give this a try. Right. So uh, you could I always tell people. Don't go and start something new unless you can't sleep if you don't do it uh, because it's it's too difficult and you won't put in the work to to actually make the breakthroughs um, that that you need because you're not truly, truly obsessed and committed uh, to this idea. So I think when I realized that I was getting obsessed about this and, and was ready to make a, a switch and uh, move it to entrepreneurship myself, that's when it um you know, it made sense. But I would actually like to say that, you know, I know that it sounds risky and of course entrepreneurship is always has an element of risk, but um, the question is in comparison to what, right? Like a lot of entrepreneurs, like when asked this question, they, they don't really identify as being like these massive risk takers that like the mythology of entrepreneurship is because like what's the alternative is continue working This wasn't the case in my case, but for a lot of entrepreneurs, continue working in a job that you don't like or isn't, you know, giving you uh, enough fulfillment. Like that seems to be also quite a risk, right? Uh, It's a it's a huge risk to your happiness and and satisfaction, and um, and so on. Um, I was pretty happy with my job, but I was also ready for like a new challenge in some ways. But I think what I did have going my way, um, and a lot of people have going their way also who do this, is that, you know, I have a great education behind me, so, um, so I know that I could always fall back on that and get a job if this fails. I have a supportive family, um, I didn't have kids uh, or young kids at the time. Uh, these are all reasons that stop people from, from pursuing entrepreneurship. And um, and I just felt like this was the time to do it. Uh, and if I didn't do it now, then, you know, I, I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I may never do it again. And, and actually, uh, I shortly after I decided to leave Washington, D.C., and move to Kenya to start this organization, I received... Uh, An offer from uh, you know very well-known multilateral institution and it would have paid me a lot more than I was even making at the time and I had a lot of student debt at, uh, and um, and all of that and it was and to essentially do the same job I was doing at that time but for a lot more money uh, and uh, and a you know prestigious sort of uh, institution and I you know I really thought about it and uh, then a friend of mine uh, who. Who I whose advice I really got, he said, "Look, like if you don't do Amani Institute now, uh, you will always, I know you. You will always wonder what if uh, this was such a you know great idea and great opportunity. What if you didn't do it? Whereas this institution is always going to be there uh, if you ever want to come back. Like they are not going anywhere. So so now's the time to take the risk if you want, and and that really made um, made an impact to me because I knew he was right. That like if I didn't do it, I would always wonder what if I had done it. Uh, and I think that's a risk too so I think the way entrepreneurs are are wired maybe slightly differently is not that they see themselves as risk takers, it's just that their processing of of risk for the alternatives to not taking the risk is is also quite, uh, quite strong mm. I don't know if that makes sense but it's what I've always felt and I've seen other entrepreneurs articulated like that, it just didn't seem that risky to them Yeah, no,
1: it does, it does make sense, I think <laughs> Wondering in the back of my mind um how much your your own sort of life experience informed the model right because you you did make the the effort and the incur the enormous expense et cetera to pursue sort of one of these more traditional offerings in a uh fancy northern <laughs> institution mm-hmm. in a different country, and you know there's the obvious uh culture of clash and um uh expectations which may or may not be met and and obviously the practical difficulties which I myself encountered uh, did that influence your your thinking on the model i mean how much is this designing a product that you would have been interested in when um you were you were younger and and thinking about what to do
0: yeah I think uh, you know um I often advise people don't go get a master's unless you really know what you want to get it in. And their response to me is, well, that's easy for you to say you, you know, you went to Harvard. So um, it's easy for you to say like, don't go and get a master's, but look like you always got that, you know? And um, I think that they're right. Like it's easy for me to say, but it's also like based on uh, my experience, which is even though I, you know, I have an Ivy league, graduate degree, and I have an undergraduate degree from a top 10 uh, university in the US as well, I learned so much more while working than I ever did in school. Uh, school gave me a lot of wonderful things, but it didn't give me sort of professional skills or um, an understanding of how to work better with people or work in complex environments and, and so on. Uh, and so what um, I there was a moment I think that it really sort of crystallized to me in hindsight, where uh, a program I was running while working uh, for an NGO, uh, I received a call from one of that NGO's, um, you know, uh, the organizations they supported, and the CEO, and and she said to me. Uh, you know my life is in danger the mafia are after me Uh, I I don't know what to do like should I go even more public and uh, risk being a bigger target but at least raise the stakes of them coming after me or should I go into hiding Uh, in which case I may get away but they may also be able to find me and you know Like do away with me in secret. What should I do? And I was 27 or 28 years old with my fancy two degrees and I had no idea how to answer her. Um, And uh, I didn't know what the right questions were to ask. I didn't know what the right advice was to give. Um, I hadn't been trained in uh, asking good questions or in coaching skills or in understanding sort of different people's life journeys uh, to really be able to respond um, to her. And so... That was, for me, uh, a moment where I felt really inadequate despite my, my you know, sort of great education. Um, but it was it was the one, it's the one I remember most, but, but there are so many other cases where it wasn't so dramatic a contrast, but it was just that I felt like I was learning more while being on the job than I was learning in the classroom. And so, yes, like the model that we developed is based on our experience of saying that um, you have to bring work into the education system. So that doesn't just mean like working while you're going to school. It means that the work you do and the education you do have to be interconnected. Um, And that the skills that you learn uh, in the classroom have to be immediately applicable in uh, in a work environment, right? So we design our program with all of this in mind. Um, and then the other thing was that how do you learn to take care of yourself? How do you manage yourself through a career in this, in this type of work? Because social impact work, and particularly if you're working in complex uh, environments where there's conflict or uh, corruption or... Mm-hmm. Um, political uh, things to take care of, it takes a toll on you as a person. And so how do you take care of yourself and manage yourself for the long haul? Like These are not things you learn in university. So when we were starting the program, we really wanted to bring those types of conversations, those types of skills, uh, that type of practical work experience to to bear on the education that we were offering, and 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 so yes, like the, what I did not get in university,
1: um, you know, we're bringing into into Amani Institute. The second point you mentioned there towards the end is interesting, and there is a a piece here that relates to um, sort of fit-for-purpose or adapted-to-context skills. Um, and we talked a bit at the beginning about why it might make more sense, in fact, to do that um, physically and intellectually located um, in an emerging market than it would in a northern institution that's somewhat disconnected. But the the second piece, which is, is equally important, is um, this question of... Uh, values and bringing the whole self to it, Uh, which is also something that is quite, I think, lacking in uh, traditional education, right? Uh, It is sort of a, a technical take on problems that are challenging to values and challenging to uh, find the, the correct direction, right? It requires principles as much as it does a set of, of technical skills a lot of the time. I mean, the example you gave is a perfect one, right? Like that is not, <laughs> that sort of situation requires an equal measure of sort of pragmatic thinking, the right questions, but also um, a strong set of, of guiding values. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? I mean, how does that Factor into um, uh, a program or, or assistance that you can give people. How does that get built into the the approach? Right.
0: So we actually we design curriculum around it. We've got a a, a part of uh, like a required uh, and and actually very popular part of our program is what we call the inner journey of the change maker. And and what that basically is saying is that uh, the living a life in in change making or in professional sort of social impact work um, Mm -hmm. it's not just like you're not doing this to make money Necessarily, like not the vast majority of us, and um, we're doing this because we are passionate about solving a problem or want to do something of service to other people and make the world a better place. And um, there's a reason why problems are, are are still there is because they're difficult to solve. And if you go up against these problems, um, given that you're already bringing a, a sort of a personal motivation. Uh, to the table, you're going to have to confront a lot of things. You're going to have to confront, uh, ask yourself a lot of difficult questions and, and get to know who you really are and how do you sustain your motivation for the long haul because social change uh, doesn't happen overnight. Yes. And so so all of that just means that uh, you've got to be quite skilled in having uh, reflective conversation with yourself about managing uh, yourself, checking that you're aligned um, uh, with you know who you are and, and what you're what you want to do uh, in the world that you are you know. Navigating questions around burnout or um, long-term personal motivation and sustainability. Um, that you're working effectively with others. Uh, that you're understanding what's driving others and how do you become a better manager of other people because of their whole selves and, and what, where where they're coming from with their work. Um, and and actually so so that is all like a never-ending journey. Uh, and, and so we've actually designed a curriculum to help people to understand some of these concepts and, and walk through them, uh, you know, themselves and to be equipped to walk through them for the rest of their careers and the rest of their lives because, again, it's not it's a journey without end in, in some
1: ways, right? Do you interrogate yourself in this regard, given that you've been uh, on this seven-year sort of journey? I mean, how do you check back into see how your original motivations yes, are playing exactly. out. Uh, yeah. All
0: the time, yeah. Uh, we all we I mean, this is sort of in, in our internal jargon. For us as well, like uh, we were always, you know, uh, questioning where we are on our own journeys and, uh, and so on. And, you know, our team uh, is like, you know, the work that we do does, throw up opportunities for feedback um, because we are working with students and they will give you they will give you feedback and, and you can then question you know how you're doing things and so on likewise with, with the team um, and uh, and then I tend to read a lot uh, reflect a lot and I'm always trying to learn something new and improve uh, in different ways so uh, yeah I, I'm pretty intentional actually about uh, this type of reflection and, and sort of self uh awareness and, and growth and, and honesty as well
1: and I, mean, I, I can't let you get off that easily and what what are the uh, <laughs> what are the conclusions in this regard? I mean how you had your initial sort of vision and it's been playing out over seven years how do you sort of do the arithmetic there
0: um, you know we we're coming to a place where uh, we are achieving our initial goal, you know, to to set up in India, Brazil and Kenya and not just set up, but actually build a stable uh, functioning organization. And um, a question that I had for myself was like, Uh, you know, am I an institution builder or am I a start-upper, right? Like, uh, even when I worked for 10 years with an NGO, I actually focused a lot on starting up a bunch of new programs for them uh, and then transitioning it to other leaders and and moving on to the next new thing. And and so uh, about a year ago, a question I was really asking myself was, am I going to be around for the next 10 years of my organization's Growth, or have I started it and it's stable, and and I move to do something else, right? And so, that that was a question that sort of you know had me interrogate a lot, like you know who am I, like who do I want to be, what what's the impact I want to have in the long term? Is it based on on starting new things? Uh, am I still motivated enough to do this for another ten years, or um, is it actually you know I, I want to build an institution and leave a like a legacy, and. In, in one organization and uh, and so on. And what are my skills best used for? Like, am I better at starting up things or, um, you know, I know for instance that like the startup process and business development and those are, those kinds of things give me more joy than kind of process improvements and management and managing people and so on, right? So um, should I go with where my skills are or do I actually like try to learn these skills and uh, and try to like learn how to actually be a better manager for the larger purpose of, of building an institution that I that I really care about. So those are like a whole bunch of different questions that I had to work through and working through them in practice, not like, you know, going to uh, Vipassana retreat, <laughs> but um, but actually like in the day-to-day, like getting feedback from my team, like seeing what I try that works, with, what I try that fails um, and, and so on, and then really understand what my motivations are and so on. So those are a bunch of like questions that I was asking myself and eventually came out um, to the place that I do want to continue. Um, you know, provided that the organization is is growing and, and all of that and, and we are you know succeeding in the world then I do want to be part of that for the foreseeable future and, and I've decided not to actually like, uh, leave. And it's the first time I think I'm saying that probably. <laughs> but, uh, we decided not to leave, um, you know, at, at sort of that first 10 year mark and, um, and sort of, uh, sign, sign up again, but it, it's actually a, a, it's an intentional signing up again, um, for the next phase of whatever it is that we, um, go on to do. Um, but that was quite a long conversation I had with myself around that.
1: That's mm. well, it's better than the alternative of, uh, you're deciding that you will resign, and the first anyone hearing about it is on a podcast. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. Definitely better than that. <laughs>
1: Might be a bit of a probably not the best leadership uh, to do it that way. Um, what What's the? I mean, there is this is the this is always the thing with social impact, right? Like, there is no obvious or logical endpoint. So, what do you? You know what's the vision, or what do what do you uh, want to see this looking like uh, in that sort of time frame? Um, I, you know, you can talk about scale, but one can scale endlessly, but sort of qualitatively. Where would you like to see Amani end up? I think
0: where we um, and this is a this is sort of a a, a work in progress or a, a vision in progress, if you will. Um, but we, I think what we want to we want to see is like. Can we build a world where um, it is not uh, anachronistic to to both make a living and make an impact, right? Like where everybody, or as many people as possible, or where it's it's actually a regular part of the conversation, not just in our social sector but in society at large, uh, that that one can, you know, and one should perhaps. Uh, you know, spend one's career making an impact in the world, and uh, and not, you know, not have that be the sort of province of the the do gooders uh, of the world. But that everybody thinks about that, and, and everybody has purpose as a as a question that they that they consider for their career alongside, you know, status and money and and whatever. That you're also putting purpose there, uh, and that that's mainstream. Uh, I think and mainstream globally, not just in one or two countries. I think that's the uh, the vision that we have, and um, and we're trying to to move towards. And, and that obviously therefore means that it's not just the social sector. We've also got to work with um, with the private sector uh, quite a lot around this. And, and we've we've starting to launch programs um, for the private sector as well to bring about like more conscious leadership, uh, you know, more purpose-driven uh, management and, and things like that. So so I think that's the direction we we want to go in. And you're right that there's no end to this, right? Um, uh, we don't know what that tipping point towards mainstreaming of this is going to look like, or we don't know yet. Uh, we, we haven't yet put a number on a wall that says, yeah, we want, you know, one billion people or whatever. Um, uh, we've not done any of that, but... Um, I do think that's kind of the that's the direction that we want to see our our impact have.
1: Yeah, I mean that it's an admirable uh, mission statement. I guess the 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 rub point there or the the difficulty is when you do try to cross from the uh, the do-gooders, quote unquote, to to everybody else, right? The early adopters to um, to, to the bigger the bigger crowd out there. I mean, how. Your engagement with the private sector, which is a, a term that I try not to use because it, it it bundles in so many different things, but sure, sure, well, you do have sort of a clash of um, uh, of worldviews in a sense, right? When you when you start to to work more closely with institutions that are uh, motivated in different ways, and how has your early, well, not even early, how was your body of experience so far been in that regard? I mean, what is that difficult to square your kind of vision and mission with uh, perhaps a different set of assumptions, a different set of expectations?
0: Well, um, certainly, right? Like there's, there is, it is kind of uh, bumping up against the old order or the, you know, established status quo of how to do things. And a lot of people still stick with that. But on the other hand, I do think that there's a change of foot in that uh, on one hand, you know, uh, the millennial generation and uh, in particular... Is actually really forcing organisations and companies to get a lot more um, conscious about their uh, sustainability impact, their political impact, and and so on. And that's why you are now seeing a lot of lot more companies, you know, weigh in on political issues than, than we used to see a few years ago. Um, so I do think they're being forced to by their customers and uh, and by their employees. So I think that's one. I think that there's there's growing data out there to show that. Companies that are purpose-driven, where purpose is about some good for the world, that's not just about you know making money for shareholders. Um, those companies actually do better um, than than companies that are only driven by financial returns. Uh, and that I think is a is a body of data that will hopefully just keep growing. And um, and and so I think you can like point to certain. Kind of signals out there, right? Like um, this isn't mainstream yet, but it, these are signals that uh, indicate uh, a growing awareness, a growing acceptance of uh, of the future uh, of where or where the future is going, and uh, and I think you can point that out to enlightened uh, sort of private sector leaders, and and a lot of them are already starting to move. I mean, you know, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella wrote a biography that talked that said Microsofts like core operating principle was empathy,
1: like Microsoft. <laughs> so, um, Users of uh, their products might
0: right, like, <laughs> disagree I mean, a from people a...
1: They <laughs>
0: may, may question that, right? But like, no. the fact that like the leader of, of one of the most successful tech companies in history, and, and Microsoft is experiencing a resurgence under his leadership, so he's doing some things right, um, you know, is talking about empathy as a driving principle of how they, they run their business. Like, this is this is new, right? Like there's a change, um, possibly um, possibly happening there. Um, if you watch, you know, again, like Facebook is is vilified in a number of ways today. But if you watch Mark Zuckerberg's um, commencement speech uh, at Harvard, like he's saying, it's all about purpose and uh, and so on, right? So. Uh, yeah, there's a you can easily critique like these guys and and whether their behavior actually like matches their words and so on. But um, I I don't think that like you know 20 years ago they would be saying the same thing. So or uh, their counterparts were saying the same thing. So I think that there is a movement happening um, towards more purpose driven leadership and and that that is going to become more mainstream. And so when enlightened leaders kind of see that, uh, they start to make um, they start to make changes and then. Uh, hopefully, you have the uh, the rest of like you know. Uh, the, the mainstream uh, start to follow because they may have no choice because their um, their partners or their suppliers are actually asking them these difficult questions, right? Um, I mean, another example is the BlackRock CEO, uh, you know, it's the world's largest private equity firm or something like that, um, and uh, uh, their CEO, I don't know if you saw this, like 2018 wrote a letter uh, to all of their companies saying that we are going to actually add purpose to the things we evaluate companies on, and it causes big stir and like the World Economic Forum, that was like, was that was a big source of gossip and, and all of that. And then 2019, you released another letter that doubled down on it. So mm-hmm. um, this is the world's largest private equity firm, you know. So um, there are leaders at the tops of these sort of uh, uh, entities that you wouldn't necessarily associate with this kind of talk that are actually starting to, to say it right. Warren Buffett, uh, Bill Gates, like uh, these guys as well. So so there's there's a change happening
1: you mentioned last time we spoke that uh, increasingly you're working with organizations rather than individuals in terms of building a set of organizational capacities, effectively, um, rather than necessarily working with individual entrepreneurs uh, within those organizations. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I mean, what is the what is the value add there, um, the sort of dispositions and skills that we were talking about earlier? How does that uh, play out at an institutional level?
0: Sure. Um, so one of the things that's happening a lot uh, today is that, you know, people talk about this being a, uh, a VUCA world, right? Like um, you've heard of that, like volatile mm-hmm uncertain, complex, ambiguous, and so on, right? But basically what it's saying is that the world is changing really quickly. We don't really know where this is going yet, but we know it's going to change a lot. And a lot of what we take for granted today in terms of our our business model, our practices, our impact uh, model, and so on is going to change because of the changes in the world, whether it's political changes uh, with nationalism and, and so on, or technological changes. And of course all those changes intersect and influence each other and so on. So leaders of organizations of all kinds are looking at a world that they don't see, they don't know where it's going, and they don't see that their teams are equipped uh, with the skills to navigate, um, you know, sort of a fast-changing, complex uh, uh, world. And so... What they tend to think then is, like, we actually need to build a different set of skills than what these staff got in the university. So, like, how do we actually look at innovation and creative problem solving as a skill that we can develop for, um, you know, for our teams? um, Or our communication skills, you know, better working with people, better working with uh, diverse groups, better working globally uh, with people that are very different than you. Um, or or new forms of leadership in the 21st century where it's like less hierarchical, less top-down, more kind of, you know, um, uh, sort of a mix of kind of consensus-based but also sort of uh, expertise-based uh, leadership. Uh, what are the latest tools that we as leaders can use from what's, what's being, you know, created out there and so on. And I think that... Uh, uh, they would like to build their team's capacity. And of course organizations have learning and development funds and so on, but I think what they're increasingly starting to see is that there is a whole set of skills that is coming that is going to be important um, for the future. Uh, skills in yeah, the same areas, communication, leadership, adaptability creative problem solving that, that we can we can help our teams to develop. And that's when they come to us to say, you know, can you help us build these types of skills uh, within our institution uh, or for whatever stakeholder group? So it could be uh, an organization wanting to build their skills of their staff, or it could be a, a foundation who wants to build skills in its grantees for this type of work. It could be a, 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 an educational institution that wants to revise its curriculum or, or the skills of its um, faculty. Um, so it's a really diverse range of organizations that approach us for this. Um, but, but that's generally speaking, kind of, and not in all cases or not in all uh, situations, but that's generally speaking where the motivation is, uh, is coming from is kind of building skills for a, a 21st century that is, you know, seems unpredictable. Um, and and then another area is around scaling, right? Like, so uh, what are the skills we can build in terms of leadership, in terms of business models, in terms of um, uh, that kind of stuff, To in terms of product program design and so on, to be able to set, us up, set ourselves up for scale, Um uh, in a way that we haven't yet done. So that's another area where people do come to us for. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be like, okay, what's going to be our fundraising strategy? but also be how do we better resolve conflict in our teams so that we, we can be more productive and, and work quicker and faster and better as well.
1: Mm. Is, it a, is it a comparative advantage in this regard, given the nature of that context or those uh, sort of meta-challenges? That institutions are facing. Is it a comparative advantage that you are located in and to a large extent a product of um, emerging market conditions? Um, Is it a selling point to say, look we are coming at this from contexts that are uh, places of very dynamic change and people who are accustomed and, and interested in engaging with very Dynamic change. Can you can you make that pitch successfully to people? Um, is that something that people grasp, or do you have to dress it up in a different way?
0: Yeah, I think that's actually. One of the reasons people come to us, right, yeah. um, which is that, you know, our experience of working in emerging markets in social impact, right, so you could bring in, uh, but but having a world-class kind of um, background, uh, faculty, staff, and so on, right, but being based in emerging markets, right, so um, a lot of times people say, look, I can bring in, a, uh, you know, a more well-known consulting organization. Uh, to help us with this, but they don't have the social sector knowledge that you guys do, right? So um, so that, I think, is one area. Uh, I think by being located where we are, um, our overhead costs are lower as well, and so we can also be, like, in some ways, a better sort of financial proposition for, um, for organizations in this part of the world than would be a, you know, a, a large global consulting firm, right? So I think we also have a cost advantage, uh, in not in all cases, but in, in many cases. Uh, but I think the other uh, the other thing that we bring to the table is, yes, the sort of, sort of emerging market understanding of social impact, um, you know, that uh, it, not everyone can bring both of those things, the understanding of social impact and the emerging market uh, um, sort of context um, You
1: know to, add to the table. Uh, I, I ask in part because sitting in in the UK as I as I speak in a politically failed state, <laughs> it is a high turbulence context right now.
0: Right. Yeah. But you know, like that's a great example, right? Of why, like, uh, like you wouldn't know it, right? Like, I could walk the streets of London and I wouldn't know that, like, uh, it's a political failed state. Like, that's because the institutions are so good, they're so strong there. Whereas if if India was a political field state. Like you would know it on the streets uh, if you're that type of personality. But you can you can actually like have more impact and have greater change, uh, see change happen
1: faster. Mm. Let me uh, let me ask you two sort of general things, and we'll uh, wrap it up. But the the first is what has been the most difficult part of this um, for you personally? And obviously, there's a lot of elements to put together. An institution and a staff and and deliver a service and I'm sure all of that is difficult in its own way, but what have you found personally most challenging?
0: I think that um, what I found personally most challenging is to try to build my skills in areas where I'm not naturally as skilled in order to do the best for my organization. Right. So uh, I may have to learn to be a better manager, for instance, um, um, or I may need to learn how to train uh, people in a, in an area where I don't actually have a lot of background, so I've got to go out and do the sort of research and study and all of that to then and practice to build the skills to, to do that. So I think that, like, it's sort of those areas that tend to, to worry me the most. Um, um, I think things like, you know, being able to live in, in complex environments or different parts of the world, that actually is a source of enjoyment for me. So, and I like traveling and living in different parts of the world. So, that doesn't um, stress me out or bother me. Um, so, for me, it's more like there are certain things I enjoy doing and I naturally gravitate to do. And then there are things that I enjoy less, but are also critically important to do. And so, how do I? Build the skills and uh, keep my motivation up to do that. Um, uh, and and that it's it's one of our board members was recently telling us like, you have to be in so many really different conversations in any given day. Uh, how do you keep your mind, you know, uh, aligned and not actually going off the rails uh, somehow? Uh, that that is that is a challenging one, uh, I think. And so so that like mental gymnastics in some way of having a. Curriculum design conversation on one hand uh, in one hour, and then having a you know event design event planning conversation the next hour having a coaching call conversation with a staff member in the next hour, and then following that up with like I don't know like a business development uh, meeting with. Um, with someone, um, followed up by like reading impact evaluations and trying to to see what that mm-hmm. like. It's like in any one day, the, the the number of different areas that one needs expertise or one needs to be able to bring uh, skills um, that can be exhausting over the uh, you know uh, as as well. And so, um, being an entrepreneur, real personality, like I tend to enjoy work, my work and uh, work a lot, but then also realizing that you're in the mar in in this as a marathon and not as a sprint, and thereby taking care of yourself and and not feeling guilty about, you know, taking a Sunday off. Uh, um, those are more the, the challenging things, right? Like, so, um, and and I think some people, some of my colleagues actually, uh, I use the word don't feel guilty to take a, a Sunday off. Like, um, uh, some of my colleagues have that. My, actually, now that I think about it, my issue isn't guilt. My issue is, is, like, realizing that I'll actually be more refreshed if I take the Sunday off than, like, but I may actually prefer to work on the Sunday. Like, in the moment, I don't feel guilt. I actually feel enjoyment about working, but I know that, like, I can't keep up that pace for, for, you know, another six months, so, like, it's actually better to take it off, even though I'd rather be working, Um, frankly. Or a Friday night, like, I could go to a bar or I could work, and sometimes I would rather be working, you know, Um, uh, but then saying, like, no, actually, like, For the long haul, it's better if you actually not think about work and refresh your mind and so on. And I think that's where my challenge is. Though some of my colleagues actually and other people, friends of mine, for them, there's a guilt element. Um, uh, For me, it's more like, how do I stay refreshed for the long haul.
1: Mm. Well, you spoke of the entrepreneurial mindset, and I think that's part of it, right? That's where your uh, hormonal (laughs) rewards... (laughs) Uh, may come from is uh, is doing things and 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 moving forward um, it can be hard to resist that but no um no moments of uh most most sort of founder slash uh starting up institution stories tend to have moments of of crises <laughs> nothing like that
0: well we've had our um our share i think nothing that has been um Nothing that has been sort of existential, really. Mm-hmm. Yet, apart from one uh, instance in Kenya where um, we, our office was attacked by um, sort of armed robbers. I mean, they weren't targeting us; they were targeting another um, organization in our same building. Mm-hmm. And that was happening in a time where there were a lot of terrorist attacks in Kenya. Though this wasn't terrorism, this was just straight up crime. Um, but um, that really made us think about should we stay in Kenya or not. And then choosing it was a long conversation. And then choosing to stay actually was the best decision we could have made. Um, but in that moment, it was a it was a crisis. Um, we always have questions about you know are we going to meet our budget and so on. But I think that that's like every organization, right? That's not so um, unusual. Um, uh, so I think we've we've had a relatively charmed uh, sort of existence in that sense in that we created a sustainable social business early on and we've grown organically. So one could actually critique and fault us for not thinking big enough, actually, to say, like, you're working with very small numbers of people. Uh, why don't you, like, try to raise funds and work with, you know, a thousand people um, a year instead of 120 in our fellowship programs? Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be a valid... Critique, I think, um, but but we made a certain our choices because of you know our perception of where our skills and interests and so on lie, um, and but that's allowed us to to not have to face some of the crises we say related to funding or um, you know that or overexposure that certain organizations that I know have had to deal with, right? And so as we've gone very sort of methodically step by step in terms of building the business model and growing. Uh, organically from there, as opposed to you know trying to have a 10x spend kind of growth curve and then figuring out how we're going to pay for all of this. So we have we chosen not to go down that that road, and I think there are downsides to that too. But I think one of the upsides is that it's it's meant to sort of more slow and steady, and uh, approach to things.
1: Yeah, has there been a um, point of inspiration or guidance there that you? go back to a lot whether that be a you know a book or a person or an experience i mean what anything that you come back to to keep yourself pointed in the in the right direction um i think my
0: co-founder is a great um source of that right like i mean sometimes she's having her periods of doubt and and i can support her and sometimes i'm having my sort of moments of sort of self-doubt and then she can support me so i think like having a co-founder with whom you're really well aligned, even though you live in a completely different parts of the world, um, I think that that has been um, very, very important. Um, there are certain management books that I I go to. Um, uh, you know, there are certain speeches and talks that I um that I've enjoyed though, that I find con- continually sort of helped me um to reflect um that I that I go to and that I've taken notes on and revisit my notes and uh and so on. Um so I would say like it's been more that I, I like to read biographies of sort of successful entrepreneurs that I you know admire their companies at least and uh, and see what I can learn from them. And um, so that helps too. Um, so those are some of the things uh But uh, I think at a deeper level, as of now at least, I'm still very much sort of dedicated to the mission. and, And at the end of the day, that's the biggest source of kind of ongoing motivation.
1: You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else, for that matter. Join the conversation at One onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.